Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Morning, everyone. Hello to those watching online and those who are here as we uh, clumsily manage our way into this new uh, intermediate future for the church. Um, so let's, uh, so many things change in our life, but even as we looked at last, word, uh, last week, how good is it that God's word doesn't change? And so let's uh, humbly submit ourselves to God's word once more in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful um, that you have given us, even as we just sang, um, a steadfast anchor and uh, one that cannot be removed, one that uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the working of your plan of redemption has been fixed in the heart of believers so that it might endure whatever our world can throw at us. Lord, I pray today for two things. One, I pray that that steadfast anchor might provide confidence to those who believe. And secondly, Lord, I pray for those who have yet to have the seat of the gospel penetrate their dead hearts, Lord, that you would work a miracle today, um, that you would bring the security and the affirmation of justification through Jesus so that we might have peace and purpose in our world through Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen. I remember uh, growing up the first time I saw the Leaning Tower of Pisa, uh, and I was astounded by it. Because here was this building that was so out of place to everything that it was around it because it was literally falling over. And it actually began falling over while it was being built. And they just said, let's go with it, which might have been what happened with this building too. Uh, And so it was being built and falling over. And throughout the centuries, since the beginning of the the second century, plans have been made and attempts have been undertaken to stop it from falling while still trying to keep kind of that little bit of cockeyedness to it. And yet they haven't been able to solve it. Yet as I began to become more and more used to seeing the Leaning Tower of Pisa, the the shock of what I was seeing began to fade away. It was not that I saw a building that was falling over. It's that I just saw the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That's what it looks like. That's what it is. Of course it's leaning. It's called the Leaning Tower. And I imagine that if I were to go to Italy right now, which probably won't happen, um, I would go there, and even my own experience with that tower would be unique compared to those who see it every day. For those who live in the shadow of this tower, this is just the way things are. This is what the tower is supposed to look like. And what's interesting is we know who designed the Sistine Chapel. We know who designed the Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty. But history debates who designed the Tower of Pisa. Why is that? Because despite the cultural intrigue and touristic value of it, the builder knows it leans because he failed. And no one wants to raise their hand and say, that was me, <laughs> 2,000 years later, still fallen. <laughs> There's shame associated with it. And we're working through a book of the Bible called 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, you can open it to 1 Peter. We're beginning chapter 2 today. Uh, John just read our passage, and we've reached a portion of Peter's letter where he is consciously reminding Christians of the foundation they have in Jesus Christ because we must be aware of the quality of our foundation. The truth is, the foundations of our world, whatever that might be, 
Whatever it is you think that your neighbor, your coworker, or perhaps you yourself build your life upon are so present, they are so visible, they are so spoken of that it's easy for us to assume, just like the Tower of Pisa, that this is normal. This is the direction, the way, and the tilt that we ought to have if we have life in this world. We learn to no longer see its oddity because we become used to it. and Instead, we see its assumed universal nature. To live in this world is to have a foundation as such. But we can easily remain blind to the truth that faulty foundations almost always fail. And the end result is shame and sorrow. And what Peter wants to do in the text today is he wants to zoom out from whatever the foundation of your life might be and show it in contrast with the foundation of the gospel so that you might see there is a sure foundation which will not fail and will leave no one in shame if they believe on, if they believe in it. And the point he's making today is really simple. We're going to be in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10, and the point is, is this, that if the gospel is not your foundation, nothing about following Jesus will make sense to you. It will seem odd, it will seem foreign, it will seem like it's about to fall over. But if the gospel of Jesus is your foundation, everything else about the Christian life, how you relate to God, how you view the the pressures of this world, and how you live as a church, all of it will begin to make sense. We're all being built upon something. Our lives want to amount to something of stature. We are driven towards it, but it's only the gospel and what Jesus has done perfectly in the past, which satisfies the needs that lurk in our hearts. And we're going to see this today. Um, Peter's going to show us the surpassing goodness of Jesus. The foundation to talk about the gospel as our foundation is to talk about the goodness of Jesus as our foundation. And we're going to see that in three ways today. First, we're going to see that the goodness of Jesus is what satisfies the Christian. Then we're going to see that the goodness of Jesus is what establishes the church And then lastly, we're going to see that it's the goodness of Jesus that drives the church's proclamation. So those are long titles. We're going to come back to them. You don't have to write them all down now. But let's begin by looking at 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this text is kind of a transition piece between where Peter's going to go with the remainder of our passage today and what we looked at last week. Those of you who were with us last week, we looked at how the completed final works of Jesus purified us for sincere brotherly love. And building on that, he now says, put away the love killers, If you've been purified for love, get rid of the things that hinder love. Put away envy, deceit, malice, hypocrisy, and slander. And he says it in a word. Put it away. But if you've ever wrestled with envy, deceit, malice, hypocrisy, slander, you've probably realized that putting them away is not as simple as just putting something in a drawer. To fight against sin, specifically sins in our heart, that prey on how we view things and how we view ourselves are difficult sins to fight. It's not this one time, put it away, and now you're done. 
It takes grit. It takes determination. There's heartache. There's struggle. There's trial in it. And if we begin to think that fighting sin is easy and only a victorious life, we're actually beginning to show that our foundation has been tilted to the ease of the world. And if we approach the costly call of faith, assuming it's going to be easy as the world seeks to make things easy and comfortable, we'll be disheartened and confused when we actually encounter the weight of what it takes to follow Jesus. But this is why Peter's call to put away these sins is actually secondary to what is the only imperative in this text we're looking at today. And we see this imperative in verses 2 through 3. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So here's this call to love, this call to put away, and it's going to be difficult. How are we to do the hard work of resisting sin and loving others? How are we to subject ourselves to the necessary growth? Whatever he's doing, he's doing it that we might grow into salvation. How is it we are to follow Jesus when life is complicated? How is it that when we feel the tension of elect exiles that we endure? Here's the command that Peter gives. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. Long for it. Desire it. Crave it. And last week, a few verses before this verse in 123, Peter says that we have been born again by the living and abiding word of God. And here he continues that metaphor because people who are born again are infants. And those infants crave milk. This was something I read for a long time, but never really made sense. The weight of it never really hit me until uh, my wife and I had kids. So, or God was gracious that Sarah and I, all full of four of our kids, uh, took to nursing really well, and it soon consumed their life and made them maniacal minions of milk. When they were happy, they wanted milk. When they were tired, they wanted milk. When they were sad, they wanted milk. When they were upset, they wanted milk. When they just woke up, they wanted milk. They wanted milk until they puked so that they could want more milk. We have this video of my daughter, Adley, and we call it Nana. I don't know why. Parents do weird things. And we're like, Adley, do you want Nana? And she just maniac she's on a bed, and she just maniacally starts like laughing and wandering over to Sarah as if like nothing in the world could be more delicious than this at this point in time. Why is it that babies love milk? Why do they crave it? They never had to take a nutrition class. There's no innovative marketing campaigns directed towards newborns to get them to order milk at the drive-thru. There are two reasons. First, biologically, they're wired to crave the milk that gives them all the nutrition they need to grow up. Secondly, they are enamored by the goodness of milk. Meaning sometimes infants drink because they need the nourishment. And other times infants drink because they need the joy. And as Christians, we are commanded to long in that same way for pure spiritual milk. For nourishment and for joy. For growth and for satisfaction. 
And what is this spiritual milk here? Well, uh, Peter's kind of using a play on words that is uh, lost on us in the English, but the word spiritual is logicon. And the word for, uh, it sounds like the word logos, which he has been using for word. So there is this word that makes you, that, that rebirths you. You become born again by this spiritual logos so that you might crave logicon, spiritual milk. And the word we looked at last week, he defines it as this. He's, it's the good news that's preached to you. The spiritual milk that nourishes us, the spiritual milk that sustains us, the spiritual milk that causes us to crave it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that feeds you all the vitamins you need as a Christian. It is not simply an entry into the Christian life. It is the sustenance of the Christian life. To think you have outgrown the proclamation of the gospel is to ignore the spiritual biology that God gave you. You need that every day. But it's also the gospel that gives us the immense joy that we desire for. The gospel brings us into the warmth of God's immense love for us. When it comes to Christian life, Peter's beginning to say, you as a Christian need to desire to long for the gospel for both nourishment and joy. And this presents in this text a challenge and a wonderful promise. The challenge is this. You will not be able to adequately put off sin, love one another, or grow up into salvation unless you see the goodness of Jesus in the gospel. You won't be able to, right? He gives that caveat. How are you to do this? Only if you've tasted that the Lord is good. There's no room for Food Network Christianity when it comes to biblical Christianity. Food Network Christianity relies on other people describing the experience of food for you. Seeing it and hearing it. And it's dangerous because we love the Food Network. I do. I'm assuming you do. Why? Because it gets really, really close to tasting it, doesn't it? We have taste buds that begin to say, ooh, I can imagine what that's like. Oh, I can taste it. And it can even make us long for the right things. But when the episode is over, you have tasted nothing. It has not fed you at all. And many times, we mediate our Christianity, kids perhaps through your parents' faith, you perhaps through your pastor's faith, or through the faith of your worship music. You've heard what it's like, but have you tasted it? The gospel demands us to taste it, to encounter it, to savor it, to not experience the gospel is to not have believed the gospel. To not experience the gospel is to have not experienced the gospel. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but you cannot experience the gospel without experiencing the gospel. You cannot taste the gospel without having tasted the gospel. The challenge is you need to taste it. The promise is it's good. It's not this thing where we get to go to the food slop cafeteria of faith and say, man, I hope this is good today. I hope I can convince myself that this is lovely. You must taste this gospel, but this gospel is the most wonderful thing you could ever taste. Look at how Peter has already spoken of this. Think of the goodness, verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 8, though you have not now seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Chapter 1, verse 18, knowing this, you were ransomed from the futile ways from your forefathers, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope is in God. God. This is good. There is nothing about believing this gospel which does not satisfy the hungry heart of sinners. We cannot experience the gospel at arm's length. We cannot simply see it on a screen. We take it. We consume it through faith. Have you done that? I think for many of us that question is a real question we need to wrestle with. Can I describe the gospel without eating the gospel? And the truth is, and the danger is, you can. You can use words. You can borrow experiences. But in your heart, Peter is calling you to taste the gospel by resting from your works. Resting from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Putting aside inheritances which are perishable, defiled, and fading. And to take what Jesus and Jesus himself has done to redeem you from your sin. And to taste that is to want to go back again and again and again and again and again. Because you've tasted that the Lord is good. Christianity is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. But to actually believe that, that in and of itself is to have tasted the goodness of Jesus. There is no goodness of God outside of his gospel. This is where we see it. Which means if you believe that gospel, I want to encourage you that you are on the road of tasting and savoring this goodness. God is not withholding anything from you. This doesn't mean that every moment of every day we taste the gospel as we should. That doesn't mean that there are times where we in our sloth or in our confusion long for sub-excellent foods. But what it does mean is we know Jesus is good because he has saved me. He has ransomed me. And he is enduring me to the end. Peter wants us to acquire taste buds of Jesus' goodness by showing us how satisfying the gospel is. This might seem silly. Christianity is just religion. It's what I do on Sundays. It's maybe even a good thing, a thing that I need. But how pervasive is it in my life? How, how much of my life needs to be influenced by this? 
Peter understands how essential it is to have tasted the goodness of Jesus in your salvation. Because at this point, Peter is now going to transition to the church. And he's going to show that it is the goodness of Jesus which shapes the church's foundation and the church's function. To continue on in the Christian life, you must have tasted that Jesus is good, or you will not endure. And this is what we begin to see in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Why does Peter say it's an imperative to taste the goodness of Jesus if you want to grow up? Because here, now he tells us, what does it look like to grow up? Long for this that you might grow up. What does that look like? Being built up as the church. This is our second point today. The goodness of Jesus is what establishes the church. To have a group of people hooked on the goodness of Jesus, satisfied by the goodness of Jesus, is to have laid the foundation for his people, the church. And in this passage, Peter begins to show the ways in which Christians are united to Jesus, and he does this by switching his metaphors. There's like actually a bunch of metaphors in this text right here. It's kind of annoying to follow, but Peter's just going from metaphor to metaphor to metaphor. And so he's gone from this newborn infant, this milk, this tasting, and now he's transitioned to that of construction. And he calls Jesus the cornerstone, or what's literally the headstone, the keystone. And this stone was the stone that during that time of building, it it set the trajectory. You didn't just pour concrete slabs back then. You found this stone, the chief stone, the, the, the purest angle that would set the angles of the walls that came from it, the integrity of the building. All of that was bound up on the quality of the cornerstone. To have a good cornerstone was to have a good building. To have a faulty cornerstone was to have a bad building. It's the cornerstone that separates the Eiffel Tower from the Leaning Tower of Pisa. One stands firm over time. One slowly falls forever, apparently. And in light of this, Peter says two things about the relationship between Jesus, the living stone, and his people, the church, the living stones. The first is, is that just as Jesus is the living stone, you Christians are being built upon him as a house of living stones. The expectation of your salvation is that it pulls you out of isolation, it pulls you out of individualism, and it joins you to part of God's church. There's no salvation apart from being added to and participating in God's collection of living stones. Now, I want to be careful here. Because when I say there's no salvation apart from being added to God's collection of living stones, we could hear that the wrong way. We could hear how the Catholic Church says it. 
where salvation, according to the Catholic Church, is simply being a member of the Catholic Church. The church doesn't save anyone. Jesus saves people. We're being built on the cornerstone. Belonging to a church does not save you, but if you have been saved by Jesus, you belong to his church. You don't get to go roll down a hill according to your own. To be set on this living stone is to participate in the construction of his spiritual house, the church. That's one of his assumptions. Because Jesus is the living stone, we are built on him as his church. But there's a second assumption Peter makes here, and that's this. Just as Jesus was the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones who will be rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. To be built on the foundation of Jesus is not to be built on the foundation of cultural acceptance. It is not to be built on the promise of popularity. It is not to be built on the confidence of comfort. To be built by salvation on the foundation of Jesus is to have a foundation different from everyone else and therefore to be seen as foolish and rejected at different levels by everyone else. And Peter leans into this, doesn't he? We see this duality in verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. And so here Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. A cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But here's the contrast. For those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here we see God, the creator and sustainer of the world, the God who knit us together in our mother's wombs, the God who made humanity out of dust in the image of God, the God who created us for a purpose and has chosen to build on that identity. He has built on that identity one cornerstone. How is it we get the blessing of God? How is it God invites us into the fullness of what humanity ought to be in the image of God, working for his purpose? He's chosen to set it on his son, Jesus Christ. This is the cornerstone of Christianity. It is not a political agenda. It is not a particular building. It is not a socioeconomic dream. It is not a specific race. It is not any sort of moral values. The foundation of Christianity is Jesus himself and your belief of all he claims to be or your rejection of it. And this stone, this Jesus is chosen by God. It's exclusive. To reject this cornerstone is to reject the cornerstone. And it is precious. There is no stone upon which we can build our lives which has greater value and greater durability. And yet, people have chosen to reject Jesus as the means by which we find our identity, our belonging, and our needs met in God himself. What does that rejection look like? 
Peter defines it for us here three times. Disbelief. You see, here we see the active heart of sin, don't we? Sin is not simply... Uh, part, I, I help grade seminary papers, and students are asked to define sin. And one common thing that, that they say is sin is anything that falls short. And that's true. But my son falls short of dunking when he wants to dunk. It's not really a fault on my son. Sin does fall short. Disbelief is falling short. But disbelief is a willing rejection of God. It is open hostility and arrogance to say, you don't know me. You don't know what my life should look like. You have no right to tell me where I should build it. You are not my God. We disbelieve God. We idolatrously think that culture can define a life well lived, that we can create something for ourselves, and we reject God because we don't think he can make sense of us. And in the New Testament, we see the Jews doing this. The Jews are refusing to believe. The original builders, the one to whom God has given the promise and the covenant and the scriptures, here comes Jesus, who they're waiting for, and they say, try again, God. This isn't what your Messiah would look like. This isn't the building that you would build. And they reject Jesus. And because they rejected Jesus, and as Jesus said, they begin to reject Jesus' disciples. But this isn't a problem exclusive to the first century. History proceeds, and those who refuse to see Jesus as the greatest need soon begin to see those who are built upon Jesus as foolish, as trivial, as bigoted, as unloving, as foolish, and as irrelevant. People who refuse to build their lives on Jesus' saving work will always find your foundation as a competition to theirs. Because as soon as you see differences, one is wrong and one is right. And we're going to fight for what we think is right. And we feel that tension. We feel it when we have unbelieving friends. We feel it when we're sharing the gospel. We feel it when we see what's presented to us on TV and on our social media feeds and what is advertised to it. We feel the war of foundations in our hearts because we are left to wonder which foundation works. We don't like being duped. We don't like buying things that we think might fail. And so we want to live our lives based off something, something we reasonably think will endure in the end, something that will provide us value, bring us the meaning or contentment we desperately want. And each and every one of us finds a cornerstone upon which we will build our lives. What do you think that is for you? What is the sum of a life well lived? What is the foundation of your decisions of school, family, career, geography? If we aren't careful, we will see the cornerstones of this world, tilted as they are, and we will look to those for comfort and find them to be increasingly normal. Or, we might do what is perhaps more common, as we look at what the world is building, 
And we don't completely disregard what the Bible says, but we say, up on that third story, there's a great spot for my flag of Christianity. This is great. I'll have the ground floor as family. The second floor will be career. The third floor will be living in Montana and experiencing adventure. And right there, right there, you'll see this distinction. This is a Christian building. But that's not a Christian building. The gospel is not window dressing to the desires and foundation of the world. The gospel is the very foundation upon which everything else depends. We are judged in relationship to this stone. You are either built upon him or you will stumble over him. And I love how Peter defines Christian life in verse 4, where he says this. He says, as you come to him. That is the truth of all human history. Every human you ever met is on a path of coming to Jesus. It's just a matter of the nature of that path. But this is the life of the church. The life of the church is a life of coming to Jesus. And when Peter says this, he doesn't envision us coming to Jesus as if we are earning our steps, progressing towards this journey of righteousness, and when we get to Jesus, then we will have done everything necessary to be saved. Instead, he's, we can kind of imagine it as this long walk down a wedding aisle. We're in the gospel. Christ has engaged us. He has put a ring on our finger. He has promised us that he will wed us for all eternity. And there was a time, I remember, I got married in this building, and my wife came around that corner back there, and it seemed like an eternity for her to get from there to here. (laughs) That's what the Christian life is. We are betrothed to our beautiful groom, not me. Praise God. But there's a long walk ahead of us. Instead of walking through a pristine chapel or a janky warehouse, we're walking through the weight of this world. It's brokenness. It's false foundations and it's fleeting hopes. And yet we look up and we see him. And we say it's worth it. However foolish it might look, We're smitten by his beauty. And so we come to him because we know that he and he alone is good. We come to him because he is the one who will not put us to shame. It is those who disbelieve who will be put to shame. Now, the Bible talks a lot about judgment. In fact, I read this this week, that the first sin was a rejection of God's judgment. What did Satan say to Eve? You will not surely die. And here he says, the people who disbelieve, they stumble over the gospel. Now, I have an honest question for you. Is there anything more embarrassing than tripping in public? It seems so silly. It seems like this common occurrence. But when you trip in public, your whole world just goes black. You're like, this is the end. You're worried about getting hurt. 
You're worried about them thinking you are just a complete and utter fool. You are worried about the shame that comes, but I want you to embrace that. The next time you trip and you feel the hot sweats in your forehead and you try to act like everything's okay, I want you to understand that there is an eternal reality behind that. That for those of you who do not have Jesus and his completed work as your foundation, it is not simply missing the point. It is not simply missing out on a better life. It is encountering shame at the rejection of Jesus and tripping over the gracious gospel that he has given to us. But for those who believe, we look, we see, and we walk. And we know Jesus has paved a way. And we move forward because we are captivated with the confidence that we will not be put to shame. And there are so many times in our lives where we realistically, we look at our world and what, what our neighbors, what our non-Christian roommates are getting, and it looks attractive to us, doesn't it? It looks like perhaps we're the ones who are missing out. And this isn't new. King David says this in Psalm 73. Uh, I want to look at um, verses uh, 3 through 6. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So that's like a a really old way of saying they're really good looking. Okay? They're good-looking, fat and sleek bodies. They're not in trouble as the others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. How easy it is for us to to think on a different foundation. We look at what they have, and we secretly, we say, man, I wish I could have that. I wish I could sleep with who I want to sleep with. I wish I could invest all of my life in the pursuit of a career which will give me the house I want. I wish I could have belonging and status in this area. Why? Because we see people who have that, and it seems to satisfy Why is it that we find it hard and difficult to prioritize love in the church and worship of God? To think in terms of our lives being primarily about offering a spiritual sacrifice to God. I think it's because we're deceived by other foundations. But look at what David says in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, that's that tension It seemed to me a wearisome task. You will never understand competing foundations until you do what David does here. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery faces and you make them to fall to ruin. When we need a vision correction, we must go to the sanctuary of God. We must look at the cross where we see where does this world lead? It leads to death. It does not lead to glamour. It leads to judgment. But there my Jesus went and died for me. There he took all of my brokenness, all of my failings, all of my rejection, all of the shame which I deserved, and he took it. 
He took it for you. He took it because he's good. He took it because he loves you. He took it because he's promised to not reject you. He took it because he is the cornerstone that we can trust in. And it's on this foundation we build out the rest of our lives. And this is the last point today. This is the point of application, that it's the goodness of Jesus that drives the church's proclamation. Verses 9 through 10 says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because we've tasted the goodness of Jesus, we've learned to handle the tension. We've gone to the sanctuary of God. We see that at the cross is the promise of death in this world, but life in Christ. And because of that, everything looks different in our world. We are built on a foundation that lasts. It's to have a new identity as the people of God. Do you hear this corporate language? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for God's own possession. You see, all the foundations of the world seek to establish possession by what you earn. If you can build yourself up to a certain level, you could be noticed by your boss. If you could build yourself up and be fat and sleek, those girls will find you attractive. If you could build yourself up and accomplish this, then at that point, I will accept you. But do you see the wonder of the Christian gospel? It starts with being accepted by God. It starts with acceptance. It starts with joy. It starts with beauty. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that starts with the reality that you are already loved and accepted. You are already possessed and precious to God, not because of what you could done, not because of what you might do, but because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And because of that good news, we participate in proclaiming that to the watching world. And what are we going to expect? More tension. But who cares? Jesus is good to us. Jesus is good to us. And you see how the foundation of Jesus' goodness changes everything. It's the foundation of Jesus' goodness that causes us to long for the gospel change in all of our life because it's wonderfully satisfying. I long for it. You long for it. Because we've tasted that the Lord is good. It helps us put on Christ and put away sin. We see the preciousness and value of Jesus as a cornerstone, rejected by men and accepted by God. And so we realize in moments of tension that even if the world is to find us odd, the goodness of Jesus shows us that we will not be put to shame, that there is something greater at stake here. And lastly, we see the precious value of Jesus and his immense love poured out for us as we proclaim the wonderful work of God for all the world to see, he has reconciled us. Our greatest problem is not acceptance by the world. Our greatest problem is acceptance by God, and Jesus won us back to that. Jesus did this for us, and now we proclaim as a chosen race the wonders of this. Now, admittedly, ideologies that start with a chosen race don't end up in a good place typically, do they? They're kind of smitten with arrogance and exclusivity, and ultimately it leads to violence and corruption and hurting other people. But this is not true of this chosen race. Why? Look again at verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is it that makes this Christian foundation so special? What is it that pushes us to share this goodness with everyone who is around us? The truth that you're not special. You were once the one who stumbled. You were once the one who was in darkness. You were once the one who needed mercy. The good news of this gospel is that anyone can get in on it. And the task of the church is to tell everyone they can get in on it. You can see the beauty of this Jesus. Do you see what he's done? Peter uses language from the book of Hosea, which paints God's people as these spiritual adulterers, ridden with shame and brokenness. And he promises, he he names the son of the prostitute, not my people. But in Jesus, he says, now you're my people. Now you've been brought back. We make much of Jesus because anyone can get in on it. And if you want proof, get your mirror out. If God saved you by grace, he can save other people by grace too. If God was merciful to you, he can be merciful to them. And I hope that the result of this social distancing in our church, I'm relatively introverted. And, and, and I know there are other introverts in here. Where there's these weird things happening in our hearts where we're like, people, this is neat. And we want to go hang out with people. Man, I hope that one fruit of this social distancing area, era is that we have so much like pent-up evangelistic frustration that we just want to share the gospel with whoever comes into our house, whoever is dropping off mail in the mailbox, whoever is sitting next to us in the lunchroom. Why? Because Jesus has done great things for us. Jesus has given us a foundation that lasts. Jesus has rescued us from shame. And we have the beautiful task of the church of proclaiming that to other people. Evangelism is not simply part of the church's mission. Evangelism is part of the church's identity. You are this Christ-proclaiming person because you were what? Called out. You were called out by this message. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, it's not on the screens, beginning in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You will encounter people who do not believe the gospel and it will lead to moments of tension in your life. And in that moment of tension, there are two wonderful proofs. Is one, we are reminded that the goodness that saves us, the goodness which endures us, is not a goodness that man's affirmation can give to us. Praise God that he weans us from false idols. And sometimes that weaning process comes in the tension 
of seeing our foundation in relation to the world's foundation. But secondly, we are encouraged because we once disbelieved. We were once that person. And the same gospel that I'm sharing is the same gospel that can save them. This is what we do. Why are you saved? Because Jesus has been good to you. Why will you endure? Because Jesus has given us a good foundation in himself. And how are we as the church to make costly sacrifices of praise? Because Jesus' goodness is the sin-killing, unbelief-crushing goodness that saved us and will save others. So how do we apply this text? Peter's given one command, and it's the only command that makes you share the gospel. It's the only command that endures you. It's the only command that causes you to grow, and that is that you would long for this milk. And you can't do that apart from God's grace. So this week, would we be a church that prays that God would cause us to long for this gospel? that the whole of Christianity would make sense because we have seen and tasted the goodness of this Jesus. And may we then endure and share this good news with all who are around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness in Jesus. We thank you that the foundation of the church is not a pulpit, it is not worship music, it is not a building, it is nothing but what Jesus has done. The only thing the world cannot take away from us. And so Lord, I pray that we join together, even in closing as we sing, that we start the first act of evangelism, of proclaiming to each other the wonderful goodness of this King. That we encourage one another by reminding them of, look, there are people on this foundation with us. We are not alone in our fight against sin. We are not alone in the tensions of this world. We are not alone in the call to evangelize and proclaim the goodness of that. And today, Lord, I pray that you equip us to long for this in the way you've, you've called us to. We pray this in your name. Amen.